So not only totally new drivetrain from scratch with frame, new frame design standards, not only manufactured locally, but also competing on value with the big, the big guys. That's wild. Oh. How long until he gets assassinated by the derailleur cabal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should I go lock my, my door? <laughs> you need a safe room, Cedric. That's right, yeah. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast with me, Mike Levy, and Brian Park. Now, it's not often that a brand new product or idea is received almost universally well by the pinkers, and especially not when that product completely disregards existing standards and proposes an entirely new way of looking at things. But that's exactly what happened last week when Cedric Evlay debuted his wild-looking Supra drivetrain that ditches the usual low-hanging derailleur in favor of a mini derailleur of sorts, and some sort of clever spring-loaded tensioning device at the bottom bracket. Now, Matt Beer wrote a great article explaining how the Supra drivetrain works that you could check it on the homepage, but I've got the man himself, Cedric Evelay, here on the podcast, and I have about a zillion questions for him about how this crazy drivetrain works, why he made it, where it might lead, and all sorts of other stuff. But first, Cedric, where the heck are you living? How old are you? And what sort of background do you have that led you to tackle a project like this? Hey, Mike. So I'm currently in Chelsea, Quebec, which is uh, where I grew up. I'm in my parents' basement right now and uh, planning to move out of here but soon, but uh, still here in Chelsea. It's a sweet place, by the way. And, that's where um, all, all good ideas are born, though. Parents' basements. Right. Thanks, it's, parents. It's, a, it's, it's an affordable way to go, you know, to get started. I think I'm proof that's not true, Brian. <laughs> So Cedric, you have, I'm sure, some sort of mechanical engineering background to be doing this kind of stuff. What, what did you do for school and how did you get into this? Yeah, I studied mechanical engineering at the University of Ottawa. And I actually originally got into mechanical engineering because of mountain biking. Like in high school, I was just obsessed. I was like designing frames and stuff. And, um, and uh, yeah, so that's why I signed up for MechEng and did that for four years. After that, I did a master's, but that was... Uh, that was a whole other direction for me. That was in the nuclear engineering world. Oh, just casually drop that in, bikes and nuclear engineering. Y yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I could explain a little bit more if people, if people are interested. But it was, it was next generation nuclear stuff. So I, I have a, obviously a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset. And so I, I, I was involved with a startup that was developing a, a next generation type of nuclear reactor to solve some of the problems with existing ones. And that was an adventure, a whole adventure. But after that, I, uh, that's when I, I decided I'd go back into the mountain bike world where I'm a little bit more passionate about things. And, uh, and that's when I came up with the super drive. And so for the past couple of years, you've been working on this for a couple of years. It's your main goal has been to bring the super drive to production. Yeah. Well, the main, the main goal at the start, <clears throat> you know, you have the, you have the, the Eureka moment where you come up with the idea. The main goal then is just like, find out if it works. So when I, I when I came up with the idea in, in the middle of the woods on a ride in 2019, I I pedaled home as fast as I could and then did a bit of modeling on my computer, which which showed that uh, that the idea would in theory work. And um, and then after I buckled down and designed a frame and built the frame to test it. So so the main goal then was uh, was really to test it out. But then once I re once I had the first frame that was working, 
And especially once I had the second frame, uh, second prototype bike working, I was like, okay, this is really valuable to a lot of people. Like this solves a problem um, without significant drawbacks. So it's just making things better. And uh, that's when I realized I had a lot of value. And uh, then, then, yeah, then I switched into gears of like, okay, how do I commercialize this and did the whole patent thing and all that. Was there a was there a moment on the trail, like some terrible moment that you ripped off like your fifth derailleur in five rides and you were just like, ah, this has got to be a better way. Or was it you just thinking about things? I had a bunch of bad experiences with derailleurs throughout my life, but I think the vast majority of mountain bikers do. And uh, I just had a general awareness that it, derailers are, well, previous conventional derailers have been a problem. Like I was aware of this way back in like around 2010. I think it was mentioned in the article that I, I participated in the, the, the pink bike design competition. And it was like a little innovation competition way back in the day. There was reality redesign, I think is what it was called. And I, I, submitted, a, I submitted a gearbox design. So I, I've been aware for a long time that derailers suck. Although ironically, the summer when I was building my first prototype frame, I did destroy a Shimano XDR derailleur. And I was like, it's funny because I was, I was sad. I was like, that's an expensive piece of kit to wreck. But then at the same time, I was like, oh, that would make a nice kind of motivational piece. So I, I, uh, I, I 3D printed a little stand. And now I have that derailleur right beside me here, actually, that, that uh, keeps motivating me to push on and solve that problem for everybody. Before, before we get into the details of the super drivetrain, I'm curious about gearbox bikes, if you've ridden one and what your thoughts are of them, how they perform and... I have actually never ridden a gearbox bike. I've never, I've never tried a pinion gearbox. Um, I've of course tried, uh, in, I've tried uh, internally geared hubs, but uh, never a pinion gearbox. I, I wish I had. So uh, I've been relying on uh, a lot of people telling me that they're inefficient. <laughs> so I don't actually have. Have you been reading my stuff? <laughs> <laughs> and there's also measurements that have been done out there. Ideally, there'd be more efficiency measurements, but there is some data out there. So yeah, I actually have not tried a gearbox. Hey, you actually taught yourself how to weld to build the frame to put this on as well. So you have you have a 3D printer, you have a CNC printer, and you bought a welder and. You taught yourself how to weld. What was that process like? Well, when I was designing the first prototype frame, I was thinking like I could have I could have somebody make it. But then I was like, if I just do it myself, you know, I could there'd be like so much more learning experience um, and things could probably go faster, especially once I'm over the initial learning curve. So I, I decided to, to make then at that point, I decided to just make the frame myself. And fortunately, there's a lot of information online about not only learning how to how to TIG weld, but learning how to frame build, like everything that goes into it, like the frame fixtures and the frame alignment and, and a, a million other things. And so with all those the, that information, um, I, I yeah, I just learned I, I, uh, I bought a secondhand welder and uh, and just practiced a lot. The welds gradually went from looking like dog crap until they were nice, uh, nice welds. And uh, yeah, so far it seems like my welds are good because I haven't broken or cracked any weld yet. I, it, that has kind of blown my mind, to be honest. Don't say that, that. Don't say that, Cedric. Knock, knock on wood, Cedric. Right, yeah. Watch them explode the next ride. But yeah, I've been riding like full-on high-speed downhill trails with my bikes and no no structural issue. It's uh, pretty mind-boggling. I got to say, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people out there making things, you know? there's There's welders and there's people that cook and there's engineers and guys doing all guys and girls doing all sorts of stuff. But I feel like there's less people who have the impetus to like, I'm going to build this, but in order to do this, I also have to learn how to do this and get this. I mean, that's, I feel like that's a whole nother level beyond just, you know, drawing something and 
Yeah. Well, there's more risk involved, right? Because I, I've been working on this for over two and a half years full time, right? Like, and during that time, I did all this learning and all this fabrication and designing. And, and you know, it, it can be less of a risk if like, let's say you have a nice, comfortable job. If you just, if you just try to patent the technology and then have a company do it for you, that, that can be less risk because you still, you still have that full time job, right? You're not making that crazy commitment. But I actually took the risk of like fully committing to this. And, um, and so, yeah, so uh, I guess that's a differentiating factor. I might have more risk tolerance than most people. You've chosen what I would say is probably the reddest ocean, like the hardest possible thing to break into as a, as a component. And you, so Cedric, you and I met uh, uh, over the, I guess, last winter, last winter over, well, I was trying to learn how to CNC machine some things on a little desktop pocket NC. And you were very gracious in helping me learn that. And so I had to learn CAD modeling, 3D printing, CNC machining. I made a clamp or a, a, an adapter for an iSpec EV mount brake, like a tiny, useless, easy little part. And it took six months. It took six months for me. Mm. I can't imagine tackling a drivetrain. And even though you obviously had all the mechanical engineering, just like, hey, I'm going to have to learn a bunch of things and physically make a drivetrain from scratch. That is mind-boggling why start there why start there yeah why not make like seat post collars or something well you know some people they they make things because they just want the experience of making something or being involved in the industry or whatnot but my my prime motivation is solving the problem like i see a bunch of people like uh, the vast majority of mountain bikers having a crap time breaking their derailers and i want to solve that so my my first intention is to solve the problem and then once i have a, a an idea of how to solve the problem, like everything else falls below that. So like figuring out how to fabricate things, um, doing, doing all the designing and commercializing, like that's just to solve the problem and, and make everybody have a better time on mountain bikes. Uh, it's uh, whereas if you take the approach of, you know, doing like a STEM, like a CNC machine STEM, like some people do, um, that like, it's nice and it's, it's cool, especially if it's local manufacturing, but, um, I, I can't motivate myself to do something like that. That's already been done a lot. There are some good stems out there, yeah. What what problems were you trying to solve with the super drivetrain? The problem that I was trying to solve is derailers breaking, but I was trying to solve that problem, well, I did solve that problem, without introducing the disadvantages of gearboxes. So let's start at the back of the bike, and I see this little thing. It kind of looks like a derailleur, but it's not where I expect it to be. It's up high. Um, hidden inside, protected by the rear triangle, up against the cassette. It, can you tell me? Is it looks like a derailleur, just missing the missing the knuckle? Is that what it is? And did you make that piece, all those components as well? Yeah, the the derailleur, I, I fully custom designed it, and uh, and same with the chain tensioner. Well, the first the first prototype drivetrain, and in, initially on the first prototype bike, I actually had a SRAM derailleur. It was a X what was it, X five or something that I'd cut off the the tensioner arm. With, and uh, that didn't shift super well, though, so I had to move to something custom, especially for the wider range cassette. I definitely needed a custom derailleur. But the, the way it works is that your conventional derailleurs, they have two main functions. One is to shift the chain across the different sprockets of the cassette. And the second main function of, of conventional derailleurs is to tension the chain, right? You have the tensioner arm that pivots backward and tensions the chain. My idea was essentially to separate the derailleur into those two functions, so or separate those two functions from the derailleur. So I, I left the the chain the chain shifting function at the derailleur. So it's still effectively a derailleur, right? It derails the chain from sprocket to sprocket, and I moved the chain tensioning functionality to the middle of the bike. 
and the the tension arm pivots around the bottom bracket axis and it's it's well protected and by doing that i uh, it allows the it enables the derailleur to be way more compact and and uh, tucked in and 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 have way more ground clearance so Jerk, the little mini derailleur that you made how does that attach to the swing arm and is that like a do you see that being like an open standard for other companies to use or is that something that's going to be patented yours only no 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 so i want i want any frame company to be able to to design a frame for the super drive and to have the least possible barrier to doing that so the piece pull have the most possible choices so the the way that the 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 super derailleur i suppose we can call it the way the super derailleur mounts to the frame is going to be i'm 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 going to uh, basically present it as a sort of standard, right? So that anybody, any company that approaches me wanting to use a super drive, I'll just give them the spec of exactly where the, the mounting locations are. And yeah, that way, you know, if you have several companies that are offering this bikes with a super drive and, and somebody breaks a little part and, and needs to replace that little part, they can go to the bike shop that'll have that replacement part. It, it, like essentially, if you, if you make things proprietary so that, different bike companies have uh, have have different parts well then it's it's uh, you have less availability right like it's it's not as widely adopted and so bike shops and, and wherever are less likely to have replacement parts and it's just generally a pain in the butt for people if things are proprietary and that is controlled via regular shifter i assume there's not a is there going to be a, a shifter that you're going to make as well or not no the the shifter is off the shelf shimano 12 speed shifter off the shelf it's going to be off the shelf uh, shimano shifter uh, cassette and chain and uh, the bottom bracket is off the shelf, the crank, the, the hub, uh, all these things are... Uh, Axle spacing is normal? Uh, well, the 12-speed drivetrain might be super boost. Okay. The, the, That's mostly normal. The mostly second normal. prototype bike is boost, but this, the, 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 the next prototypes might be super boost. And it's along the lines of what uh, We Are One is doing with their arrival bike, of having a 52-millimeter chain line with the, the super boost. Because you, you get less wear and stuff with the cassette. There's advantages. The Pinkers were with you up until that moment. They just all <laughs> you logged just, off. You just lost everybody. Axle <laughs> yeah. standard, what? Like, I'll buy a whole new frame with a whole new derailleur standard, but axle standard, that's just a step too far. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm also curious as to the travel bracket and use that you see the super drivetrain being best suited to. Do you see it? We're going to see this on enduro bikes or could you see this being used on something lighter like trail or even a cross country bike? I don't know. Absolutely. I think you totally have trail and cross country bikes with the super drive. It'll be, it'll be cool to have the efficiency measured to know really for those categories, like what you, what you're trading for all mountain enduro downhill. It's just a no brainer. It's like, why would you yeah. not have it? I have a, I have a slightly related question. Whose drivetrain, normal drivetrain, impresses you right now? If you were going to go out and buy just a normal traditional drivetrain, what would you consider? I like the shifting of Shimano. So that's one thing. Uh, so I, I like their stuff. Like that's what I'm using right now on, on the, the Super Drive. So that, that says enough. But um, I'm definitely not into the whole electronic shifting thing. Like I don't. Like I don't have a problem with it being developed for the Super Drive and it being becoming available, but I'm personally I wouldn't ever buy electronic shifting like Axis. That's just not not a good trade off in in my mind. Um, but in terms of drivetrains that interest me, but that I can't buy, I'm I'm pretty intrigued by the uh, the the ceramic speed driven concept. So I find that one a pretty cool concept for uh, for decreasing drag. I don't know of a way to make it work on on full suspension bikes where you. Uh, where you keep That's the exactly anti what I said yesterday, uh, Cedric. Well, 
Well, I actually, no, there's a way, hear me out here. So like, there's actually, they, I think they tested this. So you, there's a way to make it work on the full suspension bikes, but I don't know of a way to make it work where you have anti-squat because anti-squat has a lot to do with the, the chain system. And, and it's anti-squat is of course pretty important for making a full suspension bike sufficient. So, um, I don't know how they're going to deal with that, but anyhow, I applaud them for that kind of innovative spirit. Cedric, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but we do this little thing called the huck to flat. And if you science. watch that, science, bro science, but science, if you watch that, you could see the chain just flying everywhere, up and down. And I was skimming through comments in the article that Matt Beer did, and I saw a lot of people asking questions about chain slap and chain management. How are you managing that? The tensioner of the, the Supre drive has a really good damper, so that the damping is great. And although it looks like in the the video of the uh, of the, the super drive, it might look like there's quite a bit of chain slap, but the the drivetrain is actually really quiet, and the people who've ridden it have told me that it's super quiet. It is quiet, right? And um, and uh, but the 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 chain flapping around that's normal. Like no, regular conventional derailleur drivetrains also have that chain flapping around. But a cool thing though is so that there so basically to conclude that point, there's very little noise from chain slap with the super drive. But a pretty cool thing is that the chain is so far from the ground. Like, not only is the derailleur far from the ground and less prone to being smashed by things, uh, but also the chain is is far from the ground. And the result of that is that if you huck the bike to flat, the chain doesn't come on the super drive. It doesn't come anywhere close to the ground. Whereas if you look at the huck to flat, the pink bike huck to flat videos, the chain at the moment when the when when Jason lands and the chain comes comes down like the when the the tension arm extends and the chain kind of uh, dangles down for a moment it comes super close to the ground and sometimes i think a couple of times oh, i've yeah. actually seen the chain hit the ground mm-hmm. which is wild like that's obviously not desirable right like you don't want this drivetrain part that you spent time lubing to just be dragging on the ground <laughs> and collecting mud and dirt bold so, you to assume that pink bike readers actually lube their chains <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a conspiracy by the, the chain lube makers isn't yeah, it don't, don't lube your chain people definitely don't um yeah so so that's of course not desirable at all and and you, you totally avoid that with a super drive so and then there's there's additional advantage like i can go on and on like you can also put your bike down on the drive on the drive side with the super drive so i, I almost enjoy putting my bike down on the drive side now because i just don't have to care about it or of course, uh, it's not the same thing for. Do you remember that as a kid? Drive trains. Do you remember that as a kid, Levy? Like always, like oh, don't put your bike down on that side, on the derailleur yeah, yeah. side. Don't do yeah. it. And showing yeah, people so at the bike shop and being all proud of that. The super drive would be would be awesome for kids' bikes. I, I'm pretty keen about doing that in the not too distant future because kids don't just they just don't have it drilled into their head, of course. Cedric, someone asked a question in the comments of Matt Beer's article about removing and installing the rear wheel. And it looks like that could be more difficult than on a normal bike with a clutch derailleur. What's it like on this? And are there plans to change anything for that down the road? On the first prototype bike, I I discovered that it was quite the pain in the butt to remove and install the rear wheel. So on the second prototype bike, I I added a position lock feature so that you basically, by hand, you pivot the the tension arm a little backward, and then you engage this position lock feature. And and that way you have chain slack so that it becomes super easy to to, to, uh, remove and and install the rear wheel. It also makes it easier to do other maintenance stuff like change the chain. And and yeah, all, all future super drives will have the position lock. It's a great feature. No, it's not limited in chainring size or travel. Like it could be used on a downhill bike. It could be used on an XC bike. 
Yeah, totally, totally. The, the it looks so on the the second prototype bike, the tension pulley is quite close to the chainring, and it's a thirty tooth chainring. But on the the twelve speed prototype drivetrain that I've developed, and that's going to be on the on the next prototype bikes, that one it goes up to a thirty four tooth chainring. So there's no issue there with with chainring compatibility. And yeah, downhill bikes, the super drive is a no brainer for downhill bikes. Like, why would you not? have the super drive on a downhill bike just that uh that i don't have a you know i don't have an infinite amount of time and so i have to i have to be a little bit careful with how i spend my time so that's why i won't be working on the downhill bike thing for the next while but but uh, eventually i I'd, I'd work on that or if other people want to work on it and license the technology like they, they can go ahead i can't imagine being a downhill team that's lost points or that's lost a race because of a derailleur and looking at this and going like well that would have solved that like What's that worth? If your budget is, you know, a million or 1.5 million for your downhill team, that has to be worth a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of wasted money and just like crap times that, that will be avoided. I think with my drivetrain of people having to walk out of the woods and spend the big bucks on new derailers, all, all that waste will be avoided in the future. And I'm, I'm stoked to, to, to be able to do that for people and, can you tell me about the tensioner? You said that it's spring, it has a spring and a damper. Why? It sounds complicated. Like in my mind, I would think, oh, just some sort of spring or something is all you need. And, you know. Or like a traditional clutch, like what you would yeah. see on a regular. So why did you go with this big damper inside the down tube? Well, it, the clutch on on conventional derailers is actually a damper. And I'm I'm just uh, it's the engineer in me that wants to be technically accurate when I say it's it's a it's actually a damper. So it's just that the on conventional derailers so far the 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 well the the damper or the, the clutch has been based off sliding friction. So you know if you take apart for example the Shimano one, it's pretty easy to take off the the cover there. You have this be- this metal band um, that slides on this inner cylindrical thing, and then there's a one way roller clutch in there that makes it so that there's only that sliding in one direction of rotation. That's effectively a one-way damper. And the super drive has also a one-way damper. It's just, it's the same thing. It's just the it's the same basic principle. The in the super drive, the the spring and the damper and the, the tensioner arm and the tension pulley are all relocated from the derailleur to the middle of the bike, right? It it all goes together. And the thing is why it's especially worth calling it a damper is because of the super drive the the damper is hydraulic oh why why is it does it need to be hydraulic it seems like that's a complicated way to do it no it doesn't need to be hydraulic i have actually had for most of this project actually it wasn't hydraulic most of this project it was based off sliding friction very similar in principle of how it worked to 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 the clutches on conventional derailers but i moved to hydraulic damping because there's significant uh, performance advantages to the hydraulic damping and it's actually not complicated there's there's very li- it's actually arguably fewer pieces eh? it's mechanically simpler actually than uh than the sliding friction uh dampers and uh, or the clutches um like what i was using before or what's on conventional rear derailers and the that the really cool technical advantages of the hydraulic damping is that it's speed sensitive so basically the 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 amount of damping force depends on how fast the tensioner arm moves and more specifically, when you have fast motion, you have a lot of damping force. And when you have slower motion, you have less damping force. And why does that matter? Well, when you're shifting gears, it's actually quite slow motion of the tensioner arm. 
But when you're plowing through a rock garden and there's there's these sudden impacts to the, the tension arm to make it rotate fast, that's when you have way more damping force, and that's when you want more damping force. So obviously the super drivetrain requires that chain damper around the bottom bracket. Is that a, a proprietary thing to the frame? I guess you made your own frame, so my question is, is this is the super drivetrain ever going to be able to go on something where maybe that damper doesn't need to be in the down tube? Maybe it's something that um, can be fitted to any bike? No, the the plain and simple answer is no. It, it you can't put the super drive on a conventional bike. Both the front and rear triangle, like you need the need the whole bike to be designed around the super drive. And uh, it, well, you know, if if you could stick the super drive on a conventional bike, it'd be too easy, right? Got to have right. some challenge in this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So just for people listening, if you're having trouble visualizing what we're talking about, go check out. We'll put some photos in the in the article in the podcast it's it's a lot easier to understand how he's separating those two those two functions of a derailleur if you're looking at it and you can see that it's tucked up and in and you can see that it um where that tension arm is taking up the space and i think we haven't mentioned it here but the design requires a high pivot um so it can take up the chain slack up and into the frame and create that nice chain line do you want to talk a little bit about that cedric about why you think that that's okay, or what advantages that affords you? Yeah, you you need the you need to have the high pivot. Well, more specifically, it's not the high pivot that you need. Like you could technically have the super drive on hardtail. What you need is the either pulley. You need to have the either pulley to have the tension arm rotate up and forward. You got to redirect that the chain to give to give room for that. Essentially, is there? Can you see a future where? maybe a dual link bike like could you use a an idler pulley on a dual link bike and this might work on that or is this specifically you can only ever see it working on a high pivot bike well you can have high pivot dual link bikes like you could effectively have the pivot be elevated <laughs> while while the suspension is still being dual link i think so there's a, because of the position of the idler pulley um and oh, i should i should point out for the so for the the prototype bike that's in the announcement it's an 11 speed 10 to 45 tooth cassette and I uh, so in the future it's going to be a twelve speed with a full ten to fifty one tooth cassette. But to have that wider range, you need to move the idler pulley uh, even farther forward to to give even more range of motion for the tension arm to deal with a wide range cassette. So in general, the idler pulley is pretty far forward with the the, the super drive, and the position of the idler pulley means that the frame design has to be significantly different. But then then uh, typical bikes and um, even than uh, typical high pivot bikes, so there's there's a there's a requirement there for uh, for the frame design to be done uh, to be oriented around the super drive, but it doesn't mean that the frame design is is worse. Like it's just like there's a different direction to go. Like there's 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 a lot of unexplored territory, and the frames could be just as good as existing frames. It's just that that direction needs to be explored and and developed. So on the podcast, you have uh, high pivot idler aficionado Mike Levy and gearbox <laughs> lover Mike Levy. Um, you, inaccurate <laughs> very inaccurate for sure there's some loss with any time you add a an idler i mean i've so i've ridden your bike and it really felt very normal like that that's the that's the probably a pretty high praise for somebody who's making a wacky drivetrain is i got on your bike and it felt normal how are you getting a much well i felt much less drag than a lot of other idler bikes i've ridden a concept that might be hard for people to understand is that the bigger you make a sprocket the less drag there is and that has to do with the fact that a lot of the friction in a chain when it's cycling through a drivetrain is at that moment when the chain engages or disengages with sprockets because each, each, each pivot uh, between each two links of, of a chain needs to pivot 
when it goes onto the sprocket, and then it needs to unpivot when it comes off the sprocket. And so that pivoting of the chain links is where a lot of the friction is. And the smaller you make a sprocket, the sharper that angle. Imagine we make this extreme just for understanding. So imagine you had an infinitely big sprocket. When a chain engages with that infinitely big sprocket, there'd basically be no, practically no pivoting of the chain links. So you wouldn't have that friction. So the, the, the idea is the bigger you make a sprocket, the, the more efficient it is. And that's, that's why there's things like the oversized pulleys for, for road bikes to, to decrease drag. And uh, in, this, in the super drive, there's a 20, well, on the second prototype bike, there's a 20-tooth idler pulley, which is bigger than the idler pulley of, of other high-pivot bikes. For example, like the Forbiddens, they have a 16-tooth pulley, so it's a significant increase to 20 teeth. And also, the lower pulleys of the super drive are bigger than the two derailleur pulleys on conventional derailleurs, so that further decreases friction. And then on top of it, especially for the 12-speed version of the super drive, the either pulley is farther forward so that this distance between the either pulley and the cassette is bigger than the distance between the chainring and the cassette. So you actually have less upper chain angle on the extreme gears. And then one more point is that the super drive has a pretty clever system, which I can explain if you guys want. There's yeah, a pretty yeah. clever chain tensioning system um, with a, a uh, where basically the the, the chain tensioning system makes the, the chain tension approximately constant in all the gears. Whereas with conventional derailers, as you shift to, to the lower gears, the tension arm rotates forward and there's a torsion spring that winds up and you have a significant increase in force and significant increase in chain tension when you go to the, the low gears and uh, with conventional derailers. And that's why you get dangly, dangly chains then on the other, other end of the spectrum. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I, I have like approximately constant tension, chain tension, so it's much more optimized in terms of chain tension than conventional derailleur drivetrains. And when you combine all those things together, you know, you got the big pulleys and the, the constant tension, chain tension and, and, uh, and the lower chain angle on top, and you combine all these things and you end up with, uh, with less friction. That makes it so that with high confidence, I can say that the super drive is more efficient than other high pivot bikes. Mm -hmm. that are on the market but then the question remains and there's no question it's more efficient than gearboxes um, and then the question remains whether the super drive is well how it compares with with the conventional derailleur drivetrains if there isn't the hype of it right mm -hmm. like if they're the way you like them levy and to that question i just don't have an answer so but fortunately i'm uh, i'm planning to have the efficiency measured soon so some there's going to be some uh, some uh, efficiency measurements done so that we'll know exactly, you know, like what's the percentage efficiency of the super drive co compared to a conventional derailleur drivetrain without an idler pulley and comparing in, in all the gears. And uh, yeah, that'll be quite interesting to see. So something probably a little bit more, a little less bro science than our efficiency test for the field test, eh? <laughs> I, I applaud <laughs> that. Like good good for Seb for going out and, and doing that. Um the, the measurement of the high pivot bikes. And also good for you guys for for the tests not on the on a test bike, but uh, not on a stationary bike, but also with the on the road there that, that you've been doing. That's that's all really cool stuff. It's it's good to see that. But honestly there should be way more efficiency data out there. Like it's mm -hmm. it's not right how little efficiency data there is from the, the industry right now. Like people should know what are the pros and cons of what they're buying i don't think people realize how little power the human body puts out you know and, and how much it's worth sometimes and they're just happy to throw it away with high pivot bikes that feel like total shit you know well yeah, and well, minions or whatever else ask oh guys, yeah and ask guys and all yeah, sorts right. of stuff yeah <laughs> well i wouldn't say they're happy to throw it away they're just happy to get a bike that kicks butt on the downhills in exchange yes. for those things right and if if we could have a bike where you get to kick butt on the downhills but with less of the suffering on the way up then that's that's sweet and that's what i'm shooting yeah. for so speaking of suffering on the up 
you you expect it to be a little bit heavier than a traditional system both because of the required layout of the bike and because of the the extra chain and and the, the tension arm etc is that a problem is it a significant amount how much no. do you imagine it's going to be no so compared to other high pivot bikes it's probably going to be an increase of around 100 to 100 to 200 grams of the total weight of the whole system and uh, the thing is though that that weight is all at the middle of the bike it's all sprung weight and there's actually a decrease of around like very roughly speaking around 130 grams compared to Shimano XT at the rear end of the bike so essentially the right the unsprung, unsprung weight so it's the weight that has to move when your suspension is absorbing a bump so the less weight there is that has to move the, the the better your suspension can absorb bumps so there's actually less unsprung weight and more weight at the middle of the bike and that effectively means that the bike is more stable when you're going through rough stuff so the heavier you make this the sprung weight and the lighter the unsprung weight the more stable your bike will be, the better your suspension will perform. So effectively, the, this, the super drive makes bikes perform better in the, in the rough stuff just from that weight uh, change. But it's not a big difference, right? It's not a lot of weight increase in the total weight, and it's not a lot of weight decrease of the sprung of the unsprung weight. But it is technically no, an advantage. Yeah, I, I think that a, a large percentage of mountain bikers would trade a couple hundred grams for the promise of what you're, what you're offering, like reduced derailleur issues and just that tidiness. I think I think that that's super I don't know, I for for something that requires a wholesale change, it's been an incredibly positive reception. So it's clearly something that people are looking for even though Levy hasn't broken a derailleur in 12 years. Um I I broke one last year. I know, I was proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a thing and hiding that again, I encourage everybody to go and look up look up photos of the Superdrive, but the way it hides between the chainstay and seat stay and tucks right up in it really does drive home just how exposed a traditional derailleur is right now i'm curious you mentioned that you made you've made two prototypes i'm curious what you learned from the first one that you put to use on the second bike oof i i learned a heck of a lot but the the main difference though is that with the first prototype bike, it was actually a nine-speed 11 to 36 cassette, so a pretty small range. And like I, I can personally get along just fine with that range. Like I don't mind giving her on the on the uphills and not being able to pedal when going 50 kilometers an hour. But of course, that doesn't fly with the vast majority of people. So I, so the second prototype bike, the main thing was to was to go to a wider range cassette, going to the 10 to 45 tooth uh, range. And then the, the next prototype bike is highly likely that it will have the full 10 to 51 tooth range. So that, that was the main step. But also from the first prototype bike to the second prototype bike, I added a linkage to drive the shock. So the first, the first prototype bike doesn't have a linkage driving the shock. So it's kind of like, like the orange bikes where it's single pivot and the swing arm is directly driving the shock. It's nice to have the, the link, a linkage driving the shock because then you can get the leverage ratio curve that you want to have better suspension performance. Just casually learning about suspension kinematics while designing a drivetrain, no biggie. Well, well fortunately, so, I had background in that, right? Like I mentioned earlier, when I was a youngster, I was in freaking high school, I was I was learning about suspension kinematics. I was actually in the pink bike forums, like asking folks questions and, yes. and all that. And, and so, Are you pro so tour? I, Sorry? Are you pro tour? I am not. No, I used to be Cedrico and now I'm Cedric Evole. And uh, yeah, so so I've been learning about that stuff for a while. I didn't make any of my designs when I was young. It was a little easier to do that after engineering school 
and also when I was wasn't a poor kid. Not that I'm not that I was a poor kid. Like I was, I've been comfortable family, but you know what I mean. Like when I mm-hmm. actually had a little bit of money to work with and a um, bit of knowledge and, and skills after engineering school, then that's when I was able to make everything. But yeah, I I've known about suspension kinematics actually for quite a while. We did a we did a drivetrain podcast. I think it'll be out by the time this one comes out. Where we talk, Kaz and Levy talked a bunch about your drivetrain, and Kaz is quite skeptical that it's not of the idea, but that it's going to get traction and that it's going to be a commercially, like commercially viable thing. He he loves the idea. And I think that there's probably more than a few people who go, wow, this is really cool, but wow, this is a hard sell. What do you think about that? What would you say to the skeptics? If I give you a bike that works just as well as your old bike or very, very close in all the ways that your old bike works, but then doesn't have a derailleur that can explode. Like it doesn't matter how much you guess that it's, it's going to be market adopted by the market or not. Like you, it's just a, like simple logic means you should ride that bike that doesn't have an exploding derailleur. So like, uh, I'm, I'm not too concerned about, about the skeptics. Is it, it's also fair to say that I'm just guessing here, but I don't think you're trying to usurp SRAM or Shimano here in like the drivetrain world. You want to offer something different, not something that replaces the current drivetrain. Is that fair to say? I think the vast majority of mountain bikers would be better off with a super drive. Like there's the XC racers and and whatnot. They they might want you know the slightly low, lower weight. And uh, although the efficiency is is yet to be measured, um, possibly uh, they're more efficient. Uh, they're slightly more efficient drivetrain. So I'm not saying everybody, but I think the vast majority of mountain bikers would be better off with the super drive. Yeah. And at the same time, though, with regard to SRAM and Shimano, I'm, I am patenting the, the, the super drive technology, and I do want to start my own thing, but I'm not opposed to licensing the technology. So I'm not opposed to, to having them, you know, SRAM, Shimano, offer their own version of the super drive and where they would pay royalties just so that I would get rewarded for the risk that I took and the creative work that I did. Um, I, I generally don't like blocking the approach of blocking people with patents. I, I rather just make people pay for the uh, the, the creative work. Cedric, yeah. how many messages do you have on your answering machine from SRAM and Shimano? Right now, this it's been uh, it's Wednesday. It's it's been like five days or so uh, since the announcement. I actually have zero messages from SRAM or Shimano. I'm I'm assuming there's some lawyers that are delaying things. <laughs> But but from from people in general and companies like my full time work for the past five days has been answering people and comments and messages, emails. So you uh, there was a super attractive person, uh, quite intelligent person also who um, introduced you to some bike brands. Um, What why are you looking to partner with bike brands? Yeah, I, I did. I did design and build frames and and so. And I'm interested in that stuff, but it's a it's a bit of a handful to start a company that both does frames and drivetrains. It's already a huge handful to just do the drivetrain stuff that I want to do the the derailleur the chain and the chain tensioner. And and yeah, also there's a there's a whole bunch of reasons, but like there's also the fact that by collaborating with the frame companies, I can get a bit more uh, perspective from them of of what they want in the drivetrain. And focusing on the drivetrain allows me to to not be spread thin. How's that process going? It's great. Yeah. So. Since that person in the industry introduced me to uh, to the the first major mountain bike company that I'm collaborating with, that has been going super well. They're 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 really stoked. They're designing a, a frame to a prototype frame to go with the Super Drive. And since my announcement, I've had a, other companies that have reached out to me, and I'm engaging into collaborations with them. So all of that is just like super exciting, super fun. I'm stoked. That is very very cool. Can you can you say who you're talking to? 
or is that I, not on the not on the cards yet? Illegally, I cannot. Speaking of lawyers, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of lawyers, can we just speculate? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna speculate later, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Cannondale's pretty out there with their stuff. I know some some people were guessing that in the comments. Well, the, the 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 there's companies that have expressed interest that are actually quite conservative. And you know when you have a conservative company interested in a wacky like or not wacky, but you know like a very different thing like the Super Drive, I guess you know you're onto something. Yeah. When when could we see It sounds like it's a ways out still. It's early days, but are you expecting to see like a production version, you know, in 2 years? Would that be reasonable to think yeah that's what i'm aiming for right now i'm aiming for the the 2023 summer season you know to have something available by then so on top of potentially licensing your design to a drivetrain manufacturer and working with some bike brands to bring a bike or some bikes to market you you also have a dream of manufacturing some stuff yourself do you want to talk a little bit about how and why totally so there's a lot of reasons why I want to do the manufacturing myself in Canada and uh, possibly eventually later on also in Europe. There's a lot of reasons why why I want to do it. Um, just to name a few here, like <laughs> inherently I have a, a pretty strong technical interest in manufacturing and like all the ma- automation and amazing uh, technology that goes into into efficiently making things. Also, there's engineering advantages. So when you have the manufacturing at the same place where you're doing the engineering work and the designing, you can have a tight feedback loop of, of, of testing things and of, of modifying the, the manufacturing. Um, so there's, there's, yeah, there's engineering advantages. But then a real, really big one for me is actually the, the environmental and social benefits of local manufacturing because uh, I don't need to explain the, the the climate crisis to everybody. So everybody appreciates the need to reduce our emissions. And when you're shipping everything from halfway around the, the planet, you're not exactly uh, doing the best thing in terms of emissions. So with local manufacturing, yeah, you can avoid the, the emissions from shipping. You can also, instead of you know having manufacturing in China where there's coal plants, you could have the manufacturing in BC where there's a whack load of hydropower. And then there's the social benefits of local manufacturing, right? Where like if if the manufacturing is local, like you're essentially voting for the politicians who control the labor laws that make sure people don't get treated like crap. And uh, so you have, if it's there's local manufacturing, you have more control over the over people being treated properly. And um and if you're manufacturing in a country like Canada or in or in you know European countries, uh, you or or other developed countries, it's uh you you're more likely to have people treated properly um in the local manufacturing. So so yeah, there's a whole whack load of reasons why why I want to start the local manufacturing. And then there's also supply chain arguments, right? Like uh nobody not not too many people in the bike industry are enjoying the supply chain issues right now, and um companies that manufacture locally have much less issues. You're also not wanting to come to market with a budget story necessarily. Like, I don't imagine this is a value-only component. The value is in not having to replace your derailleur, not in a low cost of entry. I'm actually really motivated to, um, as soon as possible, make the the Super Drive really affordable. Like, I, I, I genuinely want people to have a good time on mountain bikes. And um, if a kid is faced with a really high cost to get into the sport, you know, they're less likely to get into the sport. Or if anybody is trying to get into the sport and face with a high cost, they're less likely to get into the sport. So I'm really motivated to try to make it as affordable as possible. Now, initially, especially because I'll be manufacturing uh, uh, locally and, and climbing a, a learning curve, it will be more expensive. But 
I will try to drive down the costs uh, as, as quickly as I can. And so I, I'm really keen about things like automation and, and just general efficiency in the manufacturing operation to, to make the prices competitive with overseas uh, parts uh, that are manufactured overseas, even though the manufacturing will be local. So not only totally new drivetrain from scratch with frame, new frame design standards, not only manufactured locally, but also competing on value with the big, the big guys. That's wild. How, how long until he gets assassinated by the derailleur cabal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should I go lock my, my door? <laughs> you need a safe room, Cedric. That's right, yeah. He must be protected at all costs. So the, the Grim Donut is the bike of the future, right? Yes. Uh, possibly. <laughs> possibly. That's, that's like the philosophy behind it, right? That's yeah, like, yeah. Right. And uh, if the Super, super Drive is going to be the drivetrain of the future, shouldn't we have a, a sort of Super Donut coming along? Then? Oh, that's not a terrible idea. I've heard of worse ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to make it pedal like ass, though, because that's a really important design quality of the, of the donut. It needs to pedal terrible. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Very important. I'll do my best for you there. All right, Cedric, what is next for you? What's the next step in the Supra drivetrain? Next step is to uh, to continue working with the, the bike companies that I'm, that I'm working with to, for them to develop prototypes that use the drivetrain and keep developing it so that it's great, so that it works super well and, and performs as well as I want it to and that it's really durable. And, uh, and in the not-too-distant future, I'm going to move into a, an industrial space and have other people join the Loud Bikes company which is going to be super fun, and it's going to take a bit of investment to do all that, but I will figure that out the same way I've figured out the welding and the rest. And yeah, so from there, it's just starting a manufacturing operation, starting the business, and just trying to make mountain bikes better for as many people as possible. Can you put Send Levy a prototype on that list, <laughs> your to-do list as well, too? Also, Cedric, tell people where they can find more information. I know you got a website and you have Instagram as well, and people want to see this thing. Yeah, for sure. People can head over to lalbikes.com or the Instagram page, which is uh, at lal underscore bikes. They can find out a whole bunch more information. All right. Cedric, thanks for coming on the show. We will let you go do mad scientist things in your dungeon there with your 3D printer and whatever else you got cooking. And we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. We'll, we'll catch up next time there's an update. For sure. Cheers. <laughs>